It is good to be with you guys. Thanks again for the opportunity to come back and to be able to worship with you guys. This is my second time uh, being in this beautiful building, and uh, it's a real privilege to be here. I'm one of the pastors for Christ the King, and uh, excited to be able to share God's Word with you. Our passage this morning comes from the book of Ephesians, and uh, I believe I'm, I'm going to read from this iPad because I believe this is the version that you're going to see up there. Uh, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, passage and for this morning, uh, for the chill in the air, for the reminder that uh, as we're moving through the seasons of the year, uh, that you guide every step of every day. Uh, And Lord, this morning, as we come to this passage and we continue to uh, listen to Paul's uh, argument as he's talking about this beautiful thing that you're doing in the formation of the church, we pray, Lord, that you would please allow our time here uh, to bring you glory and honor, and that you would feed us uh, from your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the uh, city of Ephesus, in the ancient city of Ephesus, I should say, uh, there was one building that dominated this, the skyline, if you will. Uh, it was the Temple of Artemis. Known as the Artemisium, Uh, It was the largest building in the Greek world at the time that it was constructed. It was built in around 500 BC and stood for 200 years before a fire damaged it. It damaged for about 100 years and then it was fixed again and stood for another 500 years as a testimony to the greatness of Artemis of the Ephesians, the goddess Artemis. Uh, It was a pretty impressive building. It had 120 columns. Uh, Each of those columns was about 60 feet tall. It was a little bit longer than a modern day American football field, not to be confused with the soccer pitch. Uh, It was a little bit longer than that. And it was by all accounts, the financial and the religious center of the city of Ephesus. If you are all familiar with the story that is given to us in the book of Acts, uh, you know that at a certain point, Paul and his companions go to Ephesus and are preaching in Ephesus. And what happens is that people are beginning to come to faith in Jesus Christ in Ephesus. Uh, And it begins to affect the economy. It begins to, people stop buying the artifacts for the temple of Artemis. And so as a result, some of the silversmiths are upset and a riot happens. And this huge crowd of people from the city of Ephesus, they come down to the amphitheater. And this is what we read in Acts chapter 19. Uh, When they recognize that the speaker, not Paul, but it was somebody else, if I recall correctly, when they recognize that he was a Jew, For about two hours, they all cried with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, that's after two hours, quieted quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, 
Who is there that does not know that the city of Ephesus of the Ephesians is temple keeper for the great Artemis and for the sacred stone that fell for this, from the sky? So for two hours, you've got this riot happening, this crowd of people ch chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And notice what the, the town clerk says. The town clerk acknowledges the city of Ephesus is temple keeper. Now that's not just some bypassing word. That was actually a designation that had been given to Ephesus. They were the ones responsible for taking care of this sacred temple for all of the Greek world. They had a very, very pivotal role in the religious life of the Greek world. And so when Paul begins to speak and teach in Ephesus about Jesus, the very uh, cultural, religious, financial heart of Ephesus is being attacked. And what Paul is doing is he's not just simply making a, when Paul in our passage here begins to talk about uh, being a holy temple, and he's writing to the Ephesians, he isn't just simply saying, hmm, I wonder what's a good illustration I could use uh, in order to convey my point. He's actually connecting to a theme that runs throughout the Bible, and he is absolutely attacking the religion of Ephesus. Now, we might be sitting here in the building or sitting somewhere in the, uh, in the, in the virtual world uh, and thinking, okay, that's rather fascinating, but what on earth does that have to do with us today? And as we don't have temples uh, to Artemis lying around. Well, maybe not. Uh, but then again, maybe we do. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I've only been in Massachusetts for just under four years, came up from Florida. And a couple of years ago, I was walking with a friend of mine in Cambridge and we were on Mass Ave and we walked into the building that has the great dome of MIT, the Mass Ave entrance. And if you've ever walked in the building on that, in that one particular door, uh, when you walk straight in, it's this very, uh, it's, it's this, you, you kind of think for a moment that you've stepped into this very sacred space. It's got high ceilings or these pedestals in the four corners of the room. It's very temple-like. And what's fascinating is when you walk in, if you, if you think of that room, the, the, the four corners where you would expect to see the statues that you would be worshiping in this temple, in those four pedestals, there's nothing there. Why? Because at MIT, there's a God. It's the God of science, right? That is a temple of sorts. And there are temples all over our city. We don't call them temples, but there are places all over our city and all over our country and all over our world where people worship something other than the one true God. We give them different names, but the gods that we worship, the gods, of, the gods of education or technology, of sexuality, of finance, of science, of freedom and autonomy, Paul was speaking against the temple of Artemis to the Ephesians. And just the same for us today, as Paul speaking to us here about the nature of what Jesus is doing in the church, Jesus is combating the temple's that we worship at today. Paul in the book of Ephesians is writing that uh, Christ is making a new humanity 
and that in making this new humanity that he is constructing people in this new community and, and that this is not just a ragtag group of people that's a community, but that it is also a temple, a holy temple in which God dwells by his spirit. Now that's a really long introduction for my sermon, but it had to be really long because if we don't understand what it is that Paul is writing against, we're gonna lose some of the richness of what Paul is communicating for us today. Uh, we are a new temple. Now, so we're gonna have two points today uh, simply because my introduction was so long. So the two points are gonna be these. We're gonna look, first of all, at the foundation of the temple. And then we're gonna look secondly at the stones of the temple. <clears throat> uh, I was walking around earlier uh, in the, uh, before the service and I noticed in the back of the sanctuary, that little table right there. And I thought to myself, I bet there's something cool in there. So I walked back there and what I saw was a, a memorial to the laying of the foundation of this building. And, and if you go there and you look, what you see is a declaration of the laying of the foundation and of laying of the cornerstone. And you see the silver trowel that was used in the laying of the foundation. Uh, the laying of the foundation in a building is a, can be a very big deal, but kind of a ceremony because we recognize in our culture that the laying of the foundation is really, really important. Paul here in our passage tells us that the foundation of this temple is Jesus Christ as the cornerstone and the apostles and the prophets. It's a profound importance. So he's saying that this temple that is being built has a foundation. Now let's back up because we actually have to maybe not take something for granted. What, what are temples for? Temples are the place where a deity interacts with the people that are worshiping that deity. Right? That's what temples, that's what temples have been throughout history. Uh, and, and it is the same whether it's the Artemisium and you've got the Ephesians going to the Artemisium in order to interact with Artemis, who was a false god, or whether it's in Israel and it's the Temple of Solomon and Israelites are going to the temple and the nations are going to the Temple of Solomon in order to interact with the one true God. And what, and what Paul is saying here is that there's this new temple that's being constructed. There's this new way that you and I are gonna interact with God and the foundation, the cornerstone, the bedrock of this temple is Jesus. He's the cornerstone. And it's the teaching of the apostles and the New Testament prophets. Incidentally, there's debate on whether or not the reference to apostles and prophets, there's a little bit of back and forth about whether we're talking about the Old Testament prophets or New Testament prophets, because there are prophets in the New Testament. I, I think it's probably a little bit better to say that it's the New Testament prophets, but at the end of the day, the point doesn't really change. It's the teaching of God's authoritative speakers, whether it's the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles and the prophets of the New Testament. It's the authoritative teaching that is given to us in scripture that's the foundation of what Jesus is building. He is the cornerstone. It's their teaching that's the foundation. Uh, and, and so we interact. Now, what Paul does here is really, it's really fascinating. There's this book that was published a number of years ago by a, a New Testament uh, theologian 
by the name of Greg Beal. And the name of the book is called The Temple and the Church's Mission. Uh, it's an academic book. It is, it is dense and thick, but, but if you, if you dump, jump into those waters, it will blow your mind. Because what he is arguing in that book is very simply that from the beginning, God has been creating a temple. That the Garden of Eden itself, you go back to the very beginning pages of the Bible, that the Garden of Eden was a temple and that Adam and Eve were the first priests to be responsible for the care of that temple. And that when they sinned, that what happened is that they lost access to be able to be in the presence of God in that temple. And so what did God do? He placed two cherubim at the entrance of this garden temple to say, you can't come in. If you come in, we'll kill you with the sword. So fast forward many, 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 many years later, and the people of Israel are wandering through the wilderness, and God says, I'm going to make my presence dwell with you again. I'm going to be especially with you. And so here it's a tabernacle. And, and have you ever stopped to wonder why the tabernacle and later the temple, first king Solomon builds the temple, why is it that these buildings have all of this imagery of fruits and trees and plants? Why is it that when we read about the lampstand, it's, it's got the buds of a, of a blossoming tree? Why is it that the, that the giant basin was uh, 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 similar to a river? Why is it that the embroidery of the curtains are, are trees and plants and flowers? Why is it that the curtains that separate the holy place from the most holy place have two cherubim? embroidered on them. Brothers and sisters, really simply, it's because the, the tabernacle and the temple were telling us, look back to Eden. What, what was lost in Eden, intimate access to God, it's now being brought back to you. It's not the same, right? Because now only the priest can go in one time a year. They've got to go through all this ritual and sacrifice and ceremony. But the point of the temple is that God was saying, look, I'm going to come back and have relationship with you. Amen. Now, we got to, amen, yes, we got to jump through so much stuff. Like I could sit here for another 20, 30 minutes and simply hit this theme again and again through the prophets, through the, through the book of, of the, through the history books of the Old Testament. But let's jump to the gospel of John. We're in the Gospel of John. Jesus, John says this. He's describing who Jesus is in John chapter 1, verse 14, where he says that, that he came and he dwelt among us. But that word dwelt can also be translated that he came and that he set up his tabernacle with us. And so what we see really clearly is, is that Jesus is now this new way in which God is making his dwelling with people. And so when Jesus says that he is the temple, when he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it back up, he's not being cute, right? He is actually saying the thing that God was doing from the beginning, creating a place in which people could dwell with God, he is doing that again, and he's doing that again now through me. So that the, the judgment of the cherubim, 
Have you ever stopped to why? Why is it that the curtain of the holy place is torn in two? It's because the judgment of the cherubim was given to Jesus. No more judgment for sin because Jesus takes the judgment on himself. This is the cornerstone, brothers and sisters. This is the cornerstone of our faith. This, this teaching that then the apostles and the prophets give us in the pages of Scripture, this is the foundation of our faith. This is the very bedrock on which we build our lives. And this is why then Paul says, you remember in 1 Kings when the, when the temple is built, when the, the, the temple of Solomon is built, uh, they, they offer all these sacrifices. And then it says in 1 Kings 8, uh, that the presence of God comes into the temple. And the presence of God is so powerful and so strong that the priests can't even enter in to do their job because of the presence of God being, being in, that, in that space. And now we come to the New Testament. And that same presence of God indwells you and me. Because he says to us, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And what that means is that you and I individually, Scripture talks about our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? And, and that's not just simply a way to, to, you know, smack down somebody who smokes and drinks and chews. If, if we reduce the temple, our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit, to simply being a way to legislate morality, we have completely impoverished ourselves of what that is saying. Because what that is teaching is that the God of heaven and earth is now dwelling with us in a way reminiscent of the way that he dwelt with Adam and Eve in the garden. But not only is he saying that you and I are temples of the Holy Spirit, but what he's saying is that we, the church, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. What, what is the significance of that? Think about it. He's writing to the Ephesians, and he's saying to them, as they, as they have, they look up at the skyline of the city, and the one building that would dominate the skyline would be the temple to Artemis. And he's saying to them, that temple is not where you are going to find your identity. We look at our skyline, and our skyline is dotted with all kinds of different places that would, would seek our allegiance. And just as Paul said to the Ephesians, the temple of Artemis cannot be, because that's what he's saying, the temple of Artemis cannot be where you go for your identity. Your identity is now found in Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone of your faith. He is saying the same thing to us. So how do we, how do we apply this? How do we bring this first point home? Well, for some of us, bringing this first point home means that we actually have to put our, our faith in Jesus Christ. There's this old hymn. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. 
We need to believe that Jesus died on the cross in order to restore our relationship with God, in order for us to be able to enter into the presence of God, which we lost in the garden. Then secondly, for some of us, it's faith in Jesus Christ. It's trusting in Jesus. But for all of us, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, it means continuing to make sure that we build our lives on the rock, on the foundation of the scriptures. There's another hymn, right? The, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. We need to build our lives on the rock that is God's word given to us. That's the foundation. That's the first point of the sermon. The second point of the sermon are the stones. You and I are the stones. The stones speak, first of all, to the unity of the church, but the stones also speak to the diversity of the church. And you know what I, I was convicted of as I was, as I was thinking about this sermon, as I was thinking about sharing God's word with you guys today, is that my, my immediate inclination, and this is largely probably just because culturally being a, a uh, living in North America and just the, the individualism that is such a part of the air that we breathe, uh, that, that I was thinking just about a local church. But, but, but God really convicted me that, that to have a larger vision of what this is actually talking about, that, that we're not just talking about a particular church, although that is true, but that we're also talking about the global church, that the global church is one church that is unified and yet diverse. The church throughout history and across the world. Paul says in our passage, he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. To understand what he's getting at, we got to back up, right? To verses 11 to 18, where he talks about the fact that the Gentiles, those non-Jews were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel without hope, without the covenants, without promise. And then because of what Christ has done, right? He, he, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's the, that's the entry point to our passage. And so what he is saying is that through Jesus Christ, we are being made one because we're being made one with Jesus. And he uses three, really quickly, one, two, three, three illustrations of, of that unity. The first illustration of our unity is that we are citizens together. He says that you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. Uh, have you ever, you know, I, we're living in a strange time, right? Half of you are on the internet. Some of you are here and everyone's wearing a mask except me right now. Uh, we're living in strange times. Uh, there are many things that are driving us apart as citizens of the United States. Many things that are driving us apart. Uh, and so we hear this, this Paul talking here about, you know, being fellow citizens and the unity of fellow citizens. And you might, we, it'd be really tempting for us to go, eh, no, <laughs> that doesn't connect at all. But it, you, you remember those, those days when we used to travel? <laughs> we used to go to other places 
You remember those times when you would be in another country and you would meet somebody from your state or from your city and it didn't matter. You didn't, you didn't care which side of the political aisle they were from, right? You're like, oh, I'm from the same time as you. Let's, and we sit there and catch up and reminisce and talk about the, the place in which we live, the country in which we live. There's a unity that exists, but that unity, as we all know, right, that unity at times can be very, very strained. Then the second image that he uses, that of family. It says that we are members of God's household. And there's a lot of imagery in the Bible about the household of God. But again, you can, you can, you can have relatives and be estranged from them. Uh, and so even that metaphor, as powerful and as, as profound as it is, even that metaphor, we, we can go, oh, okay, Paul, I'm tracking with you, but... Uh, I'm not so hot on my cousin right now. So, but here's the thing. I, I read this, and this is not my own. This is actually something I read from a pastor who preached a sermon on this, and it really, really resonated with me. You know, if the stones say, eh, I'm kind of done being a part of this building. I'm going to go somewhere else and be a building somewhere else. You have no building. The, the stones can't say, I don't want to be a stone in this building anymore and the building stand. The very foundation of the building, the very purpose of the building is lost. And so when Paul says here, he's building, he's making this case and he's saying that, that these different imageries of unity are all getting at different things. And he culminates this particular part of his argument with this idea of a temple, this building that's joined together for a very specific purpose, to be a temple to be a group of people that are pointing to what God is doing in the world. There's this, <clears throat> uh, there's this British show. I don't remember the name of it right now, but they're this group of historians that went to a castle, a medieval castle that was being built. I believe it was in France that it was being built. And they were building the castle with period tools. And on one particular episode of this show, they were talking about the stones. Uh, and and they, they talked about how much work it was for the stonemasons to identify which stone was going to go in which part of the building to make sure that they were chiseled properly, to make sure that they got moved over the right way so that they wouldn't be broken, to make sure that they were lifted up, because at this point the castle's pretty high up, and then the work that it takes to be able to place each stone just right, just in the exact way that it needs to be placed. Uh, for those of us that have driven around New England, right, we know those stone fences that you see. You look at those things and you're like, that, that's been standing around for a while. Somebody took time to put that the right way. That's what Jesus is doing with us. Jesus takes each stone and he says, this stone belongs here. This stone belongs here. This stone belongs here. He's making us one. And yet, that unity that we have is much more beautiful because of the diversity that it represents, right? Notice what Paul says in verses 21 and 22. In, a, in, the whole, in him, the whole building is being joined together and grows to become a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. The, the emphasis of together in both of those verses is, is pointing to the fact that they weren't one. They, they, they wasn't one thing. 
and that these things that were different and diverse are now being brought together into becoming one new thing. And this work is continuing. Something that several, several folks that I read in preparing uh, to preach this morning for, for you all uh, is, is that th this temple is continuing to be built because Jesus is continuing to add people, stones, to this holy temple that he is building. This, the means by which he is he's making his presence known in the world. Uh, and, so, and so this temple, if we, can, if we can play around with the imagery a little bit, this temple has stones from all over the world. So you've got some granite from New England. You've got some clay from Georgia. You've got coquina from the Caribbean. Y'all know what coquina is? Uh, the, this, the, it's the sedimentary rock that was used uh, to build a lot of the, the Spanish forts in the Caribbean world. Uh, coquina from the Caribbean. You've got Arcos from Nigeria. You've got limestone from China. And the list goes on and on and on. I tried to find the indigenous rocks of Jamaica, but I couldn't, I couldn't find one that really jumped out of me. So what would be a rock from Jamaica, Pastor? Limestone. Limestone, limestone from Jamaica. And, he, and he's bringing all of these stones together to make this beautiful temple. And it's a contrast. This temple that he's building is a contrast to the temples of our time. So what do we do with that? How do we apply this part of what Paul is teaching us to our lives? Well, there's a lot of ways that we could go. But, but again, as I was thinking and praying and preparing, uh, the, what the Lord laid on my heart was this, that instead of thinking about how this applies to a particular church, to think about how this applies for the church, and here's the reality. The church in the United States, be it Congregational, Presbyterian, Baptist, Lutheran, Pentecostal, Catholic, Anglican, what have you. And forgive me if I forgot to mention a particular tradition. The church in the United States needs the church in the Caribbean. The church in the United States needs the church in Latin America. The church of the United States needs the church in Europe, in Africa, in the Middle East, the church of Asia, the church of Australia, the church in the Pacific Rim. The church in the United States needs the prayers of the church around the world in the same way that the church around the world needs the prayers of the church in the United States. And so part of this, there's so many layers to what Paul is teaching us in this passage, so many ways that we can apply this. But what I want to suggest for us today is that part of this unity that we share as a church is being this temple that God is bringing together is a call to pray for one another. Now, you might say, okay, that sounds really good. How do I do that? Well, there's this wonderful, re there's lots of, lots of resources out there for praying that will help you do this. But the one that I have found the most helpful over the years uh, is a resource call called Operation World. It, there's a book, there's a website. Uh, if you have like, a, if you use a prayer apps, even some prayer apps will have feeds from Operation World. And every day you're given a country uh, and you're given information about that country. And you know what the, and I looked it up for today. San 
Marino. Does anybody know where San Marino is? Do you know where San Marino is? Yes! I did not think this was going to happen. That's awesome. San Marino is a city-state in northern Italy. The population of San Marino is 31,500, roughly. It is 88% Christian. And you might think to yourself, well, why on earth does a city-state that's 88% Christian need my prayer? I'm glad you asked. San Marino, this is from Operation World. San Marino proclaims itself ancient land of liberty. There is freedom to worship, but evangelism hardly exists. In the past, outreach by evangelicals resulted in jailing or expulsion from the country. As a result, no churches or ministries currently evangelize in San Marino. There are stones in San Marino that need to be a part of the temple that Jesus Christ is building for his glory. And so brothers and sisters, in a little bit, we're going to pray for, as I close this in prayer in a minute, we're going to pray for the church in San Marino because the church in San Marino needs our prayers because they are a part of this temple that Jesus Christ is building, a temple that reflects his glory, a temple that is built on the foundation of his death on the cross and the teaching of his apostles and prophets. A temple that you and I are a part of that is meant to be a contrast to the temples of our day, but a temple that when we live in, that we are a part of, that we, that we, are, that we exist in, that brings glory to God. So let's close in prayer and let's pray for the church in San Marino.